All right, Ben, we are going to be discussing a theological term, which may sound a little bit daunting at first, but I think uh, as we discuss this, our incredibly large podcast audience will uh, find a refreshing enjoyment of life in Christ and will also be burdened to study uh, the Bible a little bit more deeply. We are going to talk about the hypostatic union. Spell hypostatic. Hypostatic. H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-S-T-I-C. Is it hypostatic? Stastic. (laughs) Hypostatic. T-I-C. That was bad. What does hypostatic mean? Hypostatic means um, together, right? Joined together. Sure. I don't know what it means. I don't know. That's what I. That's why you should look it up on your phone as we're talking. I think the hypostatic union means the coming together of uh, two different natures in one person, which is really important. The coming together of this union, Uh, or or could mean mystical. Let's see. He's currently looking as as we always do when we need wisdom. You can go to Google and see what what is. What does the hypostatic um, mean? Apparently, according to www.theinternet, <laughs> it means pertaining to or constituting a distinct personal being or substance. Oh, interesting. So, so the hypostatic actually means the 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 unit the union of the being of Christ. I guess so. Yeah. Wow. Seems like I, I I think I understand what we mean when we refer to the hypostatic union yeah. more than I understand what the word, what the term itself is. You know, is one of my favorite to. things is that we can just process out loud in front of an audience when it comes to theology. Well, you and I, we that's don't really not safe. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> that's really encouraging because I know what the hypostatic union is, but now I actually know what the word what the hypo, why, why they picked that word to describe that concept. Well, and it makes sense because the hypostasis is being mm-hmm. when we talk about the Trinity. Yeah. And so it would make sense that the hypostatic union be the union of two in one being. That makes sense. The union of two natures in one person. Let's be honest, though. Is this important? Before we even talk about whether or not it's important, let's talk about exactly what it is that we're talking about. What it refers to, not just what the word means. Yeah, that's where I was going. What does this refer to? And in order to, to begin a discussion on the hypostatic union, we first have to say this is talking about the very nature and identity of who God is, because it begins with the discussion on the Trinity, that we worship a triune God, that's three persons in one essence or one being, right? Yes. Okay. However, the second person, so that one essence, that one God made up of three subsistences or three persons, that second person of the Trinity, God the Son, at the incarnation took on a second nature so you have in god you have one essence and three persons but in the son you have one person with two essences two natures from the point of the incarnation on from the point of the incarnation on not before that not before that very important and it wasn't the father that. that was incarnate that is correct and it wasn't the spirit that was incarnate that is correct it was the son and that's why we said it's the second person of the trinity that's right right and um, and, and so what happened at the moment of the incarnation, not at the moment of the birth, right? We are not Nestorians here, not at the moment of Christ's birth, nor at a moment of later in Christ's ministry, but at the moment of conception at the incarnation, you have the nature of God, the essence of God, 
and the nature, the essence of man, true God, true man, coming together in one person, in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And that union of God and man in that hypostasis, that person, now that we know the word hypostasis means, results in what we refer to as a hypostatic union, and that is that Jesus was truly God and truly man. What's the simplest way for an average person to say what you just said without getting all confused by all those words and terms? What's the simplest thing we can say? In the person of Jesus, we have true God and true man in one person. That was good. That's like it. That. Yeah. Not one being, because you actually have two essences there. You have two natures. Right. The nature of God and the nature of man coming together. And, and, and it can be a very confusing topic. In fact, when we talk about this, I think the best way to, to refer to this, as I was just uh, reading a book, actually, because I'm referencing this in my sermon on Sunday, and so that's why we're doing this, rather than looking at this and saying, okay, let's get um, as technical and specific as possible, I think what we need to do is we need to say, okay, let's let Scripture put up guardrails for us and let's stay within those guardrails. So let's make sure we know what this is not. You often refer to Ben as systematic theology as knowing the boundaries, knowing the walls. And as much as I hate to say it, I think you're right. Um, <laughs> and, and in this, we want to identify what our guardrails are of what right. we need to stay in. Cause I mean, if we're being honest, we can define the hypostatic union with a certain degree of clarity. Mm hmm. And yet, if you were to press each one of us and every honest Christian, do you understand the hypostatic union? We would say no. No, I can understand statements about the hypostatic union. Right. But can I comprehend this union? I, and the answer is no. In the same way that I can define and clarify what the doctrine of the Trinity is, but it doesn't mean that I can get my head in it and through it to understand how there can be one divine essence that subsists in three persons. Now, Pastor Ben, let me ask you a question, put oh, you on the spot. Oh, dear. Should that statement, I can't understand this, should that give me an excuse not to study it? No. No, it shouldn't. I don't think that it should. You know, there is an idea that's kind of like, uh, man, if it's confusing, if it's hard to understand, then it's probably not one of the things God wants us to know, because God's concerned with how we live, not about all the confusing aspects of the Bible. That's right. Um, and I think that that comes from kind of a misunderstanding. This kind of an idea comes from a misunderstanding of, I think, the relationship between the, uh, the the person in the image of God who thinks and the person in the image of God who works and does. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that we glorify God as image bearers and as children of God by redemption. We glorify God not only by the things that we do, but by the thoughts that we think. That's right. God is glorified in thinking true thoughts about him. Mm -hmm. And so as we come to his word with humility and trust, and we look at the hypostatic union and based on scripture, um, we do our very best to understand what scripture is teaching and what scripture is not teaching and be as careful as scripture allows us to be. We're actually glorifying God in our minds through those thoughts that we're thinking. And besides the fact that it leads us, I believe, into a deeper and greater worship of the God who was incarnate, the God man. I think so. And for me, I, I always like to look at topics like this and say, one of the reasons why I want to go down this road and I get excited about being clear in this and, and get excited about being accurate mm -hmm. is that I want to know 
the character of God and the being of God as much as he has revealed him. Yes. Yeah. I want to go down. I want to say, okay, since the Bible reveals, even though, even though the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, since the Bible reveals that father, son, and spirit are one in three, Mm -hmm. I want to know what that means as much as I can. Yes. And when the Bible says that Jesus is truly God and truly man, there are some major implications to this in a huge way. And when we say the phrase hypostatic union, person who's listening to this may go, whoa, I don't know. That sounds that sounds like something I can never understand. But when we say the exact say it another way, Jesus is 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 everything that it means to be God, he is God. Mm-hmm. And everything that it means to be man, he is man. And what I want to do is I want to take those two truth statements and I would like to as go as far as I can in understanding what that means and what it doesn't mean so that when I see Jesus, I recognize him in heaven. Right. So, so my heart, my heart resounds with that recognition of, I knew, I knew this would be what it was because I studied your word and what you gave me. There's a really great example of exactly what you're talking about in church history and actually throughout church history, but throughout church history, the greatest theologians have recognized that there is kind of a crossroads where faith and understanding meet and they join arms together. And in fact, a lot of the medieval theologians um, that some people would describe maybe as a little bit more mystical, they they wanted to read theology. They wanted to read truth about God so that they would be prompted to think more deeply and carefully about who God was. And in that contemplation of God, they would actually be led into a clearer vision of the God who is. And they believed that this was so practical for the Christian life precisely because it's the vision of God that Mm. brings joy to the human heart. Mm. Uh, Probably one of the best examples maybe of this in the medieval days was Anselm of Canterbury. Um, You know, and you may or may not have heard of Anselm of Canterbury if you're listening, but Anselm of Canterbury was a theologian who rigorously studied the scriptures and church fathers, and also believed that um, reason itself was um, consistent with the tradition of scripture, what scripture teaches, and so on and so forth. And in his philosophical works, he begins and ends with prayer. And he's Hmm. kind of credited with this concept, although it goes all the way further back from him, all the way back to Augustine and even beyond that. But he's credited with this phrase, I don't understand so that I may believe or I don't seek to understand so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand. We call Mm. it a faith-seeking understanding. And he looks to understand the truths of Scripture, and then as he does, he concludes, as I was just reading about this a few minutes ago in my office, but he he concludes by thinking about the joy and the help to his soul that thinking about God provides for him, especially on his soul's journey to glory, to forever behold the reality of God's being and God's existence. That's awesome. Let's um let's take this and narrow it down a little bit. Okay. Let's talk about this specific union in the person of Christ of God and man. And let's set the boundary of what this is not, okay? Um first of all, this is not the idea that the 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 deity and the humanity are combined into one being. Right. So you have Jesus as a deified human or as a, you know, a, a humified, <laughs> that's, right, not, that's yeah. not the right word, 
but a uh, a, a, a humanized. humanized humanized that's what I'm looking for yeah humanified is is like humanified. <laughs> uh, a a humanized deity right to where you'd have like okay Jesus is kind of like Hercules right who steps down from Mount the Mount uh, Olympus. And he's a god walking among right. men. The Superman. Yeah, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, 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 no. Or, as we've heard, God with skin on. Like, mm-hmm. he is a deified human. He was a human that that God looked down and gave him an extra level of, you know, of unction or something. Mm, right. And thus he becomes part deity and part human. Because when you have that. If you were to believe that, you give up both sides. Right. He's no longer truly God. And he's no longer truly man. And we'll talk about the implications of that in a second. But that's a, that would be a Nestorian view. Thomas Aquinas argued against that pretty vehemently in his Summa Theologica. He, he said, you can't really have something like that, what you're describing, because it actually produces a third substance yep. that's neither God nor yep. man. I, I take the back. That's not the Nestorian view. That's the monophysite view. Yes. Monophysite, however you want to say right, that. Right, right. Um, Nestorian view is, is the idea that he's two, two persons. persons. Yep, he's got a the way a, I you know how I remember that a god in there and a and a human. In this there. is why I teach my students when talking about Nestorianism. You can teach remember me. Nestorianism teach me. because it believes that there are two persons nested in one being. Oh, Nestorianism. So you have Nestorianism. Yeah, two you have persons, two, two persons nested in one being. That's how I remember. Because you've got the mono. That's what how I remember the monophysic oh, view. Look at that. Is that mono means one. I love having this podcast where we can just <laughs> trade ideas and just learn so much. How I, I will never forget Nestorianism now. I used to get those confused, obviously, as I just did. Um, but um, why let – me, let me ask you this. Why is it so important – let's look at Nestorianism. Why do we have to have a person who is both God and man? I'm, I know that you have an answer to this. I, uh, my answer is probably going to be a little bit different than yours. Um, for one thing, if you operate under an historian assumption that you've got like a human person and a divine person, then the question then becomes, who is actually paying for sins? There you go. Uh, it's very difficult to know whether or not redemption is actually accomplished and applied because you have to have death in order for there to be a true substitutionary atonement. You have problems with the substitution atonement if you right, yeah. So, but And then also, like... And what uh, we mean, let's go down the road and explain that for just a minute. The reason why we say we have a problem with substitutionary atonement is because an historian would say, here are things that Jesus did as a man. Right. Here are things that Jesus did as God. And if he did not die as the union of God and man, as the true God-man then he cannot substitutionally take our place and appease the Father's wrath. Right. And then, you know, it raises questions about how uh, uh, God's wrath is poured out. On whom is God's wrath poured out? out? You know, because if you have uh, just a human person, there's no way they can bear up under divine wrath. Um, And then with this two-person theory, it's just simply not taught in Scripture that we have two people who are atoning for our sins. We don't have a, a two-person redemption. We've got one mediator between God and Jesus man, the is, man, yeah, Christ he's, Jesus. He's so, always seen as one. Right, exactly. So we, if any time that we get beyond the simple statement that it's one person, uh, then we're, we're venturing outside of scriptural teaching. Okay, so I'm actually going to pull up my notes here. Please do, yeah, bit. yeah. Um, so this act, this is not new. Like we, We're not the first ones to, uh, to, to talk about this issue, are we? No, no. <laughs> in fact, early yeah, on in church thing. history, in the Council of Ephesus and Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, however you want to say it, um, not Calcium, right? 
That's then. that's in milk. That's in milk. That's calcedin. Yeah. In these councils, um, this was a huge issue that um, the last thing I read, I think they're close to 400 church leaders got together mm-hmm. to clarify, to, to prayerfully consider the scriptures and to talk about what the scriptures say in order to give us a, a clear understanding of uh, of this doctrine of Jesus being truly God and truly man. So in the mid, you know, in the mid fifth century, you've got people coming together, Chalcedon. Here's what they say. People, church leaders coming together here, here, here really is the, the, uh, the statement that came out of Chalcedon, the same Christ Lord, only begotten recognized in two natures. There it is. And then it gives a list of things that this does not mean, Mm -hmm. which I think is very important. Without confusion, meaning that that they're separate from each other, without an inter, with, without not separate, um, but they don't without mix. confusing the the properties of each. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. We don't have. We uh, don't want to say you don't want to use a god man smoothie. Correct. We and that that's a rejection of of the monophysite view. Right. View. And if I'm saying that right, if somebody knows how that's pronounced, maybe they can call in to our show, and 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 fix that. But um, without confusion, without change. Mm-hmm. Meaning that the the nature of God was not changed when the human nature was added to it, without division. And that's without, against Nestorianism because you can't. Yep, ha- we don't have two you, separate you, entities two separate persons, residing yeah. in the same location, and without separation. Right. Meaning there was no part. Right. There was no, no division. Time no separation. When, when, when the when the God the when, when God's nature was removed or the human nature was added or things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, meaning they are still distinct, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence. And I like the way R.C. Sproul says this. He says, we should see that we can't divide them, but we must distinguish them. Yes. So you can't divide. Because they're not identical. No, they're not. Because you have the the divine nature of God that is omnipresent that is veiled by the human nature that is not. You have the divine nature of God that is omnipotent. Right. But as a two-year-old, Jesus's human nature veils that. So it's not gone, um, but it's, 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 it's not divided, but it must be distinguished between the two. It is one person. This is where we get to the limits of our comprehension because I can't explain that right. to a point where I can understand it and comprehend it. Right. And any illustration that you use is a bad illustration because it always falls short and takes you into some sort of heresy for this, right? Right. But what we can do is we can make statements of what it is and what it's not. Let me finish the statement, then, uh, then I'll turn it over to you. Not as a parted or separated into two persons, there it goes against against historianism, but one and the same, Son, only begotten, God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And I just wrote down the following. In other words, Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, two natures in one person. There was never a time when the human nature of Christ existed without the divine nature unified with it. And there will never be uh, it brought into union with it. And there will never be a time in the future in which Christ will not exist as the God man. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it blows your mind. And we're going to talk about what that means for us here in a second, but were you going to, were you going to say something there? Well, just that, you know, I, I've done 
a decent amount of reading in church history and it's something I enjoy. Um, and yet I still feel very inadequate and elementary when it comes to this particular doctrine or things like the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and it might be asked, you know, well, at what point is it even useful anymore? Well, it, it's useful in the same way that it's useful to continue to study the gospel throughout your life. Um, it continues to yield more and more of a love and adoration of the person of Christ and so yeah. on and so forth. But let's talk about those church councils for just a second. Is it important for us to view that statement as authoritative for the life of our church? Yes. I. That statement is authoritative for our church as far as that statement reflects what the Bible teaches. Because biblical truth is always authoritative. Exactly. That, that statement is not authoritative as in we read the statement from Chalcedon or the statement from Ephesus or the Nicene Creed right. or the Athanasius, Athanasian Creed. And we look at that and we say this is equal to Scripture. And the answer is no, that's not true. But – as it rightly reflects what the Bible teaches, it is authoritative. Just as if I say, repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ, that is an authoritative statement because it reflects the truth and the teachings of Scripture. So what's wrong with a person who says, counsel of Chalcedon, Chalcedon, Calcium, it doesn't matter, it's stupid, I've got my Bible, that's all I need. What's wrong with that kind of an attitude? Yeah, and I would say that kind of an attitude looks at it and says, okay, there are there are mysteries in the Bible that take a long time to process and understand, and there are wonderful men of God who have worked through these concepts together in the past and have come to certain conclusions and I want to not reinvent the wheel, but study why they're saying what they're saying and lean on that. Just like if we were to say, you know, um, plug into the wall, that's ridiculous. I'm going to build a water wheel. And you say, okay, but, but that's not building on what's been built in the past and understanding all of the mistakes and all of the of the truth that's happened in the past because one of the beauties of the council the councils that you look at let's take chalcedon for instance and you look at nestorius and you say okay what i'm going to do is i'm going to look at chalcedon i'm going to then trace nestorius's life and his teaching and see where it ends up and watch the heresy and the fallacies and the error that then creeps in the church you can do that with arianism you can do it with so many of the other um false presentations of the Bible that that the church councils um, worked through early mm -hmm. on. And um, and so my, my statement would be, it is authoritative as it accurately reflects the teachings of the Bible. And so we can look at this and we can say, does this accurately reflect what the Bible teaches? And if so, it's authoritative for our life. The reality is, is that Christians throughout the ages, regardless of their various other theological differences agree that Chalcedon, Chalcedon is an accurate and faithful representation of scriptural truth. For a person to reject this particular council says a great deal actually about what they really think about scripture. Yeah, or or and or have failed to think about scripture. Or have failed to think about scripture or are willing to say that um, these godly that this godly lineage that I that I look to that Christianity has held for the past well since it's it, it, okay first of all let's say this it's not as though the church didn't believe this before Chalcedon it's as though Chalcedon takes this concept that the church has already believed and and brings it to a razor's edge and right. says we're going to be specific on this according to scripture and it has stood for sixteen hundred years almost right, right yeah. 
So you look at this and you say, okay, I, I don't just quickly throw away 1600 years of agreed biblical doctrine. Right. Is another way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so as we think about these church councils, um, it's not just like a, a weird thing where it's like, why in the world are we attaching ourselves to some 1,500-year-old document? Or does that mean that we're like, what's what about the history of this church? And uh, what, you know, people can get a little bit freaked out saying, well, I mean, look at all that. Isn't that, you know, maybe where the Roman Catholics came from? And they, they believe that, so maybe we shouldn't believe that either. And all of those things need to be set aside as we just examine the scriptural teaching. And again, like you say, the church has held this doctrine implicitly from its inception. Mm-hmm. And it's at Chalcedon that it gets clarified and given a vocabulary that systematizes mm-hmm. what the Bible's already teaching. Yeah, um, there are a lot of creeds and councils that people need to know. Is there a resource that would help them with that? Well, we have a reading track that really? actually, in a very accessible way, only three books in this reading track. Is there a book in that reading track that would help them know these creeds and councils? There is a book that is literally called "Know the Creeds and Councils." And, really, and not know like a negative. K-N-O-W. It's a silent K. <laughs> Not K-N-O-W. no. Right, no. The but, creeds but, and councils. But now the creeds and councils. <laughs> um, and, and this is a huge resource. And I think w- one of the things that this does for me is it helps me understand that what I believe is a reasonable faith that has stood the test of time, that is an accurate interpretation of Scripture. So once again, when we get to heaven, we can look at Christ and say, I knew you would be like this because I, I, I carefully read about you and have been worshiping you in this way my entire there's life. an impartation of joy in our worship and service mm-hmm. and obedience the more we understand. And if there's anything that um, Joe has said here that you didn't understand. You could just come on Sunday and hear Joe explain it on Sunday, yeah. um, which would be great. So if you didn't get it the first which time, which is going to be all of this in like a quarter of my sermon because it's only the first of six points. <laughs> There's no rush on this. Let yeah. me say what. Let's just bring this all to a head in this. Why is it important that Jesus be fully God and fully man? Why is that important? There are two main reasons. <laughs> okay, well, just as another little uh, push for something, Anselm wrote a whole book on this called Why the God-Man, Credeos Homo, and he talks about why why did God become man? And the short answer, there's a lot of reasons, but mm. um, our redemption could not be accomplished any other way. Let's specifically talk about redemption. Why must Jesus be truly God? to accomplish redemption. Only a true God can bear up under infinite wrath, and only a true man can represent sinful humanity to the Father. There you go. And there, and and wrapped up in there, you have the active and passive obedience of Christ. You yeah. have all sorts of things as, as human, and you have the uh, the full accomplishing of the law as God, and all these different things. And so, um, it is it is vitally important that even if you don't know the phrase hypostatic union, that you need to know that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Mm-hmm. And may that knowledge fuel our worship, and may God bless this aspect of the sermon on Sunday.